Good morning. Please turn in your Bible, if you have one with you, to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at those two, um, those two scenes from Jesus' life that occur on either side of that chapter 3 page break. Before we do, um, you, you remember in that second story, Jesus comes into the synagogue and there's a man there who has a, a withered hand. He's got a gnarled hand. And Jesus' first words to him are, come here or rise up or be resurrected. It's the same phrase that is used about Jesus' resurrection in the book of Mark. And it's used several times in healing stories um, that, that, that where Jesus is telling someone to be raised from hopelessness, even from death itself. And as we come to this story, the way that the narrative is written, it funnels us to this interaction that Jesus has with this man with the withered hand, and it puts us in that scene and suggests to you, suggests to me, that there are always aspects of our life that are withered. That maybe our hand is gnarled around something that it shouldn't be holding on to. Um, too much alcohol to numb us from something else that's going on deeper. And in order to lay hold of Jesus, there's something that we have to let go of for, first. Maybe it's anxiety. I mean, I, I, I've always struggled with this. But the thought, the thing that you're worried about that's just stuck in your head um, like a fish hook and you can't get rid of it and you go to bed to it and you wake up to it and it's there in your mind often when you're not expecting it to come, to come in. It's something you can't control, something you can't do anything about except just have hard feelings. Shame works the same way. Is there some way that our Minds, in that sense, have become withered, and Jesus is going to show us that He's capable of inviting us to stretch out our minds to Him and receive a greater degree of rest than we've ever experienced. Our hearts can be the same way. So, as we come to this passage, we're going to see these two stories set up like a one two punch, or um, there's a lot of information that's super important in this first story which both of these really are the tail end of a series of stories um, of healings and things that Jesus does that are all related to Sabbath. But anyway, this end of chapter two story, we learn some amazing things from Jesus' own lips. We get invited to listen in, to eavesdrop, so to speak, or to be part of a conversation that Jesus is having with these Pharisees. So that's important. And then in the second um, story that we see that, that Mark puts right next to it, it, the whole thing kind of pivots toward us. We see, um, we see it kind of um, test-driven and applied. So that's how we're going to spend our time. First, we're going to look at this first story, and we're going to spend most of our time in it. And it's the one that starts in verse 23, and it goes through um, verse 28. It centers on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is really important to this story. And we're going to look at uh, three things that, that we that are true about the Sabbath, that make this, the theme of Sabbath, really important to this story and to this accusation that the Pharisees lay at Jesus' feet. Why are your disciples doing that which is unlawful on the Sabbath? 
That's, those are hard words. That's a serious thing, right? It's not like your shoe's untied. Um, why are your disciples walking around with their, with their sandals untied? To, 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 lay, to suggest that Jesus, the rabbi, that his followers are doing something unlawful on the Sabbath right in front of him, maybe with him. Maybe he's making little granola bar snacks with the grain while they walk through the field with them. Who knows? Maybe that's where they got the idea. We don't know, but it's a serious thing. So we're going to look at three, uh, three things here. First, what is the Sabbath in the Bible? Like, and then what is the, the Sabbath historically, immediately for these Pharisees and these disciples and for Jesus right then when it's happening? Why is there a charge around it? And then lastly, we'll see what, what did God intend for the Sabbath. So let's move through these quickly. First, we know that the Sabbath is one of the uh, Ten Commandments or one of the Ten Commandments. The fourth one, the longest one, um, centers around the Sabbath and keeping it holy. And it's the longest commandment, and it's also the only commandment that's explicitly rooted in creation. That this is how God made things. This is how he set everything up. And in order to resonate with this and harmonize with it, you have to resonate and harmonize with this way that God did it. It's baked into creation that we work hard and then we intentionally rest. It's the way the universe works. And it's in the fourth commandment. Next, alone of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath, um, it, it carries with it, um, again, this appeal to divine order. That in order to be in step with God, we need to be in step with how he set up the Sabbath with relation to his own work. The specific rule, if you look beyond the if you include the Old Testament and the law, but also bring in the Talmud and other things that were written that actually governed the Jewish people at this time, here's an example of um, Sabbath law. For one thing, it was a capital situation if you're violating the Sabbath, so that's a big deal. But if a building collapses, so you, can, you can't do any work on the Sabbath that's not necessary, and that's really gray, right? Um, I could call something necessary that Aaron might not and vice versa. Um, so they, they're really clear and they, they tediously like lay out these specifics. If a building collapses in your neighborhood across the street, if a building collapses um, and you see it happen in whatever you're nearby, you're allowed to move rubble on the Sabbath in order to ascertain if there are any living people in there under the roof that, ca that caved in. And if there are living people, you're allowed to remove the living people from out of the collapsed building because it's life or death. If you find dead bodies under the roof, you leave them. You leave them for after the Sabbath. You leave grandma in the collapsed building because it's not a matter of life or death for grandma anymore and you need to rest on the Sabbath. I'm saying this because it's, it's like really serious, right? Like beyond what we would normally think. And a matter of life or death for you to honor it and to keep it. So there's a biblical um, background a little bit for the Sabbath. Historically, and very quickly, like uh, I used to just drive from here to PetSmart on 33 recently. Um, just like however, whatever, I would just be in my own world and just driving. And same with Joanna, apparently. And then, and then we got two uh, 
items of mail, or, or maybe it was one item of mail with two photographs in it, but the Harrisonburg Police Department paparazzi, um, they took photographs of each of us on different days around Christmas time, which was a real blessing. And, um, and they were nice enough to send these photos to us um, with a, like a pre-addressed envelope with like a donation re- recommendation. So $200 of really interesting spending later. Um, From now on, when I'm on that stretch of road, I'm hyper alert that I'm I'm at 25, no matter how many cars are stacked up behind me. Like, I'm doing 25, because I know that this is real, Um, that monitored by cameras or aircraft or whatever, like, it's real. (laughs) And as long as they're here, I'm going to get a ticket every time I disobey. And so I... I'm very careful. In a, in a much greater way, um, the Pharisees in this story and the Jewish people of this time, they're hyper aware of honoring the Sabbath because in Jeremiah we read that violating the Sabbath was one of the key reasons that they got exiled to Babylon. Like, oh, you're not going to take care of this? You're not going to honor the way that I set it all up for you to live and breathe and have your being in my land that I set up and gave to you, well, then I'm going to kick you out. And if God can kick us out once for violating the Sabbath, he can kick us out again. And so the, the Pharisees here aren't being tedious and hysterical. The Pharisees, as the watchdogs of the, government, the covenant, the ones who are really kind of like the referees in some sense, helping Israel to, to receive the blessings from God, by obedience rather than the curses from God that are also promised for disobedience. They're just doing their job. And they're asking Jesus, this rabbi from Nazareth, um, why are your disciples walking through this grain field and violating the Sabbath right under your nose? I think it's a fair question. So far, I mean, I think anytime you see Pharisees, if you've read the Bible for any length of time, you see it, right? And let's admit, like, we're kind of charged against them or we've got energy that moves toward them, like we're sneering a little bit or bracing ourselves. So far in the story, I think that they're fine. In the next story, we're going to see them as an example of what not to do. But so far, they're asking a fair question, a valid concern. The point of the Sabbath, so we've seen the biblical kind of layout and the historical context, why the Pharisees are so concerned right now about it. And the point of the Sabbath is covenant. The whole point of the the Sabbath is to raise human beings above the routine of our earthly labors each week so that we might fulfill our unique privilege of living in covenant with God. The Talmud describes the Sabbath as a holy ordinance of God and ordains that whoever observes the Sabbath becomes a partner with God in creation and in creation of the world and and also in bringing salvation to the world. A microcosm or a micro picture of this macro picture of Sabbath we see just in a quick reference in in Genesis in the early time when um, Adam is finished with his work for the day and in the cool of the evening, we, we, we read that he's walking with God, that Adam and God walked together in the garden in the cool of the, of the evening when the, when the workday was over. That's, again, like just a snapshot. This is God's heart. 
God's heart for giving us Sabbath isn't to just impose a bunch of electrical fences around us that we can't really keep track of and just to kind of put us on edge. It's the opposite. It's, it's an invitation to let your shoulders relax and to come close to God and to rest your head on his bosom and enjoy the fact that he created you and he sustains you and he sees you and he loves you and he wants to nourish you with rest to nourish you with his own presence. This is the point, and we see it again. We see it there as, as Adam is walking with God in the cool of the evening. If that's true, if that's true, then Jesus' disciples, even with like just a little bit that they know about Jesus so far, they're about to learn a lot more. But if that's true, then aren't the disciples perfectly observing s- Sabbath? I mean, they're walking with Jesus. They're with him. They're talking with him. They're enjoying him. They've, they've left everything behind in order to stretch themselves out to him and to allow him to organize their lives in a totally new way. Aren't they perfectly observing the Sabbath in that covenantal sense? But the Pharisees, they don't recognize who the disciples are walking with. And honestly, they probably don't either. But Jesus is about to tell them. He's about to tell us. It's kind of like the Pharisees are um, pulling Jesus over for some reason. And they're saying, license and registration, please. And they have in their mind something that Jesus did wrong. And when Jesus pulls out his license and registration and they read the names on it and we kind of get to look over their shoulder and read the names on his license and registration, it's like, oh, snap. Like, this is serious. This changes everything. So let's look and see what he says as we listen in how Jesus reveals himself in verses 25 through 28. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus responds to the Pharisees' accusation by revealing himself in three distinct and awesome ways. And so I think the the task for us for the remainder of our time in these passages is to accept that Jesus really said these things about himself. That, that as it's recorded here, Jesus really does identify himself with King David. And he really does imply or explicitly state that he is the son of man and that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He says those three things just like that to these Pharisees. 
So he, he takes a question about right or wrong, lawful or unlawful, with regard to this specific thing about rubbing some grains together while you're walking in a field and eating them, which that in itself is fine. Um, but apparently the Pharisees are saying, well, that's actually harvesting. They don't have a sickle. That would be illegal to walk through someone's um, grain field with a sickle and hack down some, and, get, and that's stealing. But to just walk and sustain yourself with a minimal amount to snack on, totally fine to hit someone's pantry for a granola bar. <laughs> and, so, and so the question of is this harvesting or not, Jesus totally sidesteps it and says, actually, let me tell you a story about King David. And he's putting himself in the middle of that. And let me tell you a story about the Son of Man. And he's putting himself in the middle of that. And let me take you all the way back to creation. If the David thing is true and the Son of Man thing is true, then let me take you back to creation and I'll tell you that I am actually Yahweh of the Sabbath. If that's true and we struggle with anxiety or holding on to something too tightly, if there's any way that you're withered right now, if these things about Jesus are as true as they are, and he's as real as this, and he's inviting you to Sabbath with him, then I, then I hope you have confidence to stretch whatever is withered toward him and let him heal it and restore it and give you deeper rest. So let's look at these, th these, these three things that Jesus says about himself. First, he says that, that he's basically the fulfillment, he is the fulfillment of King David. The prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Jesus tells this story of David's desert, desert fox years when he and his men were running from King Saul. David had been um, anointed king, but he wasn't on his throne yet. Saul was still on the throne, and Saul was nervous about David and, and also had seen as they fought side by side how David was like really blessed by God in battle and whatever. And so he, Saul is trying to kill David, kind of like how Herod was trying to kill Jesus, when Jesus was born, like before this thing can really take root and grow, I want to snuff it out. And so Saul is hell-bent on killing David. And so David and his men are um, in the desert like um, nomadic refugees hiding and going from cave to cave. And it was in this time that they were so hungry and they got um, the showbread that was forbidden. So it's not really even explicitly a Sabbath story that Jesus is telling. He's using the question about Sabbath to say, since we're kind of on the topic of people's men doing things that are questionable, let me just tell you, I am the root of Jesse. I'm the one who's come. I'm the promised king. And I'm right here in front of you. This is the, the fulfillment of this deep hope that Israel had for so long, that the world has had for so long, that, that Israel has, has always been told that one is going to come after the line of, of Jesse's son, David, and bring this reign and bring this kingdom and Israel didn't forget this. Just like how every week um, in our service we say, 
Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We remember together that Christ is going to come again, that he's going to outlive whatever pain we're in. He's going to outlive whatever brokenness there is in the world, and he's going to come again and make all things new. And that's good news for us um, who live in the in-between. In the same way, Israel remembered that that this root from Jesse is going to spring up. Here's an example of their liturgy. Cause the branch of David, thy servant, speedily to sprout, and let his horn be exalted by thy salvation. So just like us, they're putting their minds on the future and saying, what a day that will be. What a day it will be when Jesus comes again, the one who's been raised from the dead and makes all things new and brings peace and justice to everything and gives us eternal, deep, uninterrupted rest. That's good news for us. And this was good news for Israel. They were looking with their imaginations every time they gathered and saying essentially, what a day that will be. And Jesus here is saying, today is that day. I'm here. I'm, I'm David. And I'm the branch that is going to bring peace. But Jesus is far from finished. We see that he identifies with David. And next we're going to see that he also claims to be the son of man. Um, Jesus uses this phrase, son of man, several times in the Gospels, right? And whenever he uses the the phrase son of man, um, he always uses that direct article. He calls himself the son of man. He never just says son of man, like a son of man, because that is like you could use that more um, generally, like just to talk about a person um, or, or humanity in general. Jesus only ever says it with the Son of Man attached to it. So what is he talking about? We've already heard him compare himself to David and to lock himself into that narrative and to kind of reorient all the floodlights of that whole hope story around himself. He's comfortable to do that. Listen to what else he does, though, with this Son of Man. From Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." The son of man in Daniel 7 is the promised root of Jesse. More specifically, it's, it's, it's the promise of so many other things. That God is going to come in person to shepherd his people Israel. Declaring himself Lord of the Sabbath. By doing this, Jesus asserts an authority that is God's alone. And he's declaring that his mission is the fulfillment of the Sabbath and the revelation of its deepest meaning, that God can actually come and be with you, and that you can be with God, the way that these disciples were. That you can be completely healed, like this man with the withered hand. That you can be restored. That you can be fully alive. That those parts of you that are withered and compromised All you have to do is stretch them out to Jesus. And he can do it. And he wants to do it. 
He's not hiding from you. He's not hiding from these Pharisees. He's right out there with it. Look, if you would only realize who I am, I'm not saying I'm David to intimidate you. I'm saying David to tell you, I can actually heal you. I can bring you that peace that's promised as the fulfillment of that great king from our past. I'm telling you that I'm the son of man because I am the arm of the Lord that's, that, that he has bared in the sight of all the nations so that all the ends of the, the earth might know not his terror, but his salvation. I'm here to make you whole. Jesus is here putting himself in the middle of these narratives to show us that he's the fulfillment of this mission of peace that God has been working since Genesis chapter 3. We also see Jesus if in light of him being the son of man and David, that he is logically the Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, that's how this verse is written in, in Greek. The word order isn't important because all the words have, with their endings and stuff, they have, uh, they're easily identified as what part of speech they are, or what modifies what. So you can take a Greek sentence and totally shuffle it and throw it down in any order you want and it, and it still makes sense, basically. The way that this sentence, but we don't do that in English translations because it sounds like Yoda did the, the writing. Um, oftentimes, it just comes out awkward, like the order's wrong. <laughs> um, and, and in this one, it, it's like that. It says, um, th- this, this thing about Lord of the Sabbath actually says, Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man is. And so he's leading with that fact that he is Lord of the Sabbath these ones who are bringing this accusation, Jesus uses that energy to um, elevate himself far beyond what they had imagined and what we imagined. And so again, here he's presenting himself to us as this one who is leading the, the whole universe and inviting you as part of it into this deep peace and this deep restoration. The last few minutes of our time, let's Consider what happens here by way of illustration in the next passage, verses 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. The way this is written, it almost sounds like it happens right after the previous thing. Like, okay, let's step inside and see what happens next. So they're watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Or in other words, rise up, be raised. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Here we see that Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, as David, 
as the Son of Man. There's no one greater coming. These are the high watermarks of all prophecy of hope for the Messiah in the Old Testament. And he's just pulling them all together and weaving them around and saying, I am that. It's kind of like what he does at the Passover meal, at the Last Supper. So many references to the Passover and then all the ingredients are there. and, And Jesus is basically saying, whenever you have this Passover meal from now on, don't do it in remembrance of the Red Sea and Moses. Do it in remembrance of me. I am the Passover. I'm the new Passover. And I'm not going to take you across a body of water. I'm going to take you through a veil that's about to be torn from top to bottom. Like, he's doing that with these images. And he's putting himself in front of you and in front of these Pharisees and in front of this man with the withered hand. And he's inviting us to stretch out toward him. And the withered man guy, the withered hand guy does. The Pharisees don't. The Pharisees don't. They're not ready. There's... References in the book of Acts where lots of Pharisees become obedient to the faith, and that's good news. Maybe they needed to hear it again. Maybe they needed to hear it 20 more times. And maybe that's you today. But Jesus is here inviting you to stretch out that part of you that's withered. If it's something that's in your hand that you need to let go of in order to lay hold of Jesus. If it's anxiety in your mind that that robs you of feeling his closeness and warmth and hope, then so many times in the New Testament, Jesus or God through the apostles reiterates exactly what Jesus is saying here. Don't be anxious. Give me that stuff. If you, re- if you stretch out your withered mind to me and give me that stuff, then I promise in Philippians 4 to garrison around your heart and mind like soldiers to guard you with peace. Or humble yourself under my mighty hand if you have a withered mind. Humble yourself, how? By casting your cares on me because I care for you. It's the same vibe. This wonderful, perfect all-powerful Sabbath giver is inviting you to stretch out whatever is withered and come to him. No one greater exists. Jesus is the exact imprint of the glory of God. All of the beauty, all of the rest, all of the fulfillment, all of the wholeness. No one stronger can ask you, lean into me for relief. Lean into me for rest. So many things call for our attention, don't they? With that same promise. But only Jesus can really give it to us. So as we move toward Lent, just a few days, we'll be back here for, for, um, for Ash Wednesday. Let's come prepared to stretch out whatever is withered toward Jesus and to find new rest in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.